Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Bakari Sellers Podcast. Today, we'll be interviewing Reverend Dr. Robert Turner, the pastor of the only standing Black-owned structure from the historic Black Wall Street era in Tulsa, Oklahoma. We'll talk about remembering Tulsa and a broader conversation around race, reparations, and atonement. But before I get to Reverend Turner, I wanted to talk about this back and forth between President Biden and the Republicans on the jobs plan so that our listeners can read between the lines of what the news is reporting about Biden's jobs plan. But more importantly, how this administration is seeking to manage both Republicans that don't want to see him succeed, but also the moderate Senate Democrats who, as we've seen this weekend from Joe Manchin, ain't helpful either. In case you've missed it, last week after uh, weeks of negotiating an infrastructure proposal with Republicans, President Biden rejected the Republicans' latest $928 billion proposal after he originally proposed $2.2 trillion. It's been clear for some time now that there was never going to be a bipartisan deal. So I know a lot of Democrats are wondering why I go through all of this when you know that you're not going to get a deal done and you can't get a deal done with only Democratic votes. The answer is moderate Senate Democrats and that goes beyond Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema. In order for them to feel comfortable politically enough to vote for a big bill where you spend this much money, there has to be a perception that they attempted to be bipartisan, even when they know Republicans won't vote with them. And so instead of a bold, transformative bill, a lot of my moderate friends use Republican negotiations as cover to support smaller, less transformative, watered-down bills. It's the same reason why this group of Democrats support what folks like Manchin and Cinema are doing around the filibuster. They don't want to actually have to vote on progressive bills that require only 50 votes, and it could force their hands, including the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. While Manchin and Cinema get a lot of heat, they're not alone. And as you can see, they're holding up progress on a jobs plan. And it's this group of Democrats that will ultimately decide whether we walk into the midterms with real accomplishments if we're going to ask voters to give us a majority again after failing to deliver on a major promises to not only recover from COVID, but also to deliver on the justice agenda that we always talk about. Regardless, that's that on that. Now on to our interview with the Reverend Dr. Robert Turner. This episode is brought to you by Thomas's. Thomas's presents Technique with Tom. Slicing an English muffin with a butter blade? Boulder Dash. Just pull apart with your hands and marvel in the nooks and crannies splendor. For each one is unique like a snowflake. Thomas's. Huzzah! A toast to breakfast. This episode is brought to you by Viore. I love sports. I know you do too. I also know that lots of you exercise, but if you're like me and my wife, the, the beloved sports gal, you're sick and tired of ugly, uncomfortable workout gear, especially, you know, I do a lot of walking. I walk around LA, I make calls, I listen to podcasts. Here are two words that will change everything. Viore clothing, a line of activewear that is unbelievable. The best thing about Viore is you can lounge around in it, you can work out in it, you can go outside, you can go shopping down in your local wherever, and you never feel like you're either underdressed or overdressed. You're just comfortable. You can wear it when you're training, traveling, lounging around the house. Go get yourself some of the most comfortable and versatile clothing on the planet. Here's the deal. Our listeners get 20% off their first purchase at viori.com slash Simmons. Once again, V-U-O-R-I.com slash Simmons. Simmons. 
I know this is a very busy time for you, Reverend Dr. Turner. So I want to make sure that we use your time wisely. First, thank you so much for joining. It's my pleasure. It's my pleasure. Um, thank you for having me. I know this is a busy time period for you as well. Uh, shout out to that sign you got behind you, Reparations Now, huh? All day. I understand. I understand. Look, before we get into the meat of the subject matter, we we usually get our guests to understand who we're talking to in the arc of your career. And something that was pretty amazing to me that I that I learned is that you withdrew from law school to become a minister. Why did you choose to make that change? And what made you answer that call to the ministry? Because I wanted to withdraw many times from law school, but it wasn't to go to the ministry. I can tell you that much. <laughs> well, it was um, really just divine, man. i never forget it. I originally got my call to preach when I was 18, when I was online pledging Cap Alpha Psi. And I'll never forget that. And I just, you know, kind of, because I didn't know what exactly I was supposed to do, I just kind of shrugged it off. And I had my own ambitions in life. And one of them was to be an attorney and all of that. But when I was studying civil procedure, I could just hear, and actually in the law school, law school study carol, and I just felt the overwhelming conviction of God telling me to do his work and for him um, in ministry. I always felt like I could do it as a lawyer and several people do. But mine was an Isaiah 61 calling to do that solely. And um, that's what I've been trying to do and, 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 and fight for justice, not just not in a courtroom, per se, but in the public square. Hey, listen, I got a lot of friends who are, who are uh, members of the great fraternity Kappa Alpha Psi. So you mean cool. to tell me you got the call in during set? How, how'd that work? <laughs> hey, that was terrible. <laughs> <laughs> you, I don't I don't know how that went over with the boys and you sitting there and said, and you like, wait a minute. That's right. <laughs> that's right. That's, that's, that, that was that was the, the toughest one of the toughest times of my life. And uh, if you know anything about going through a process, it's just you and the guys you're going through it with. And I, I was raised in a church. So when I was when I was always taught when you were in need, you know, go to the Lord. And I, I did that. And he started talking back. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh, I didn't mean to get all of that. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Listen, how and during this time period, you know, you're going through COVID, et cetera. How have uh, you adjusted as a minister to do this work during COVID where so, so much of it has to be done virtually? And you are, and usually you're doing a hands-on type of profession, which is the ministry. So how are you changing, especially in a community like the one you're, you're in, which has been devastated in a community in need? Yeah, COVID really has caused us, particularly the Black church, to change a lot of how we do ministry. We are a touchy-feely, hug-your-neighbor, you know, kind of denomination. And COVID changed all of that, right? Um, but we found other ways to serve. Um, being an AME, you know, found by Richard Allen during the height of yellow fever, you know, black men and women in Philadelphia under his leadership, you know, treated folks from yellow fever. Right. And during COVID-19, AME Church, particularly Vernon in Tulsa, we found ways to serve. So uh, God speaking to me, inspired me to start a feeding ministry. Mm. And out, just out of our church and we didn't have the money for it. I would never forget. He woke me up out of my sleep and said, feed my people, because we typically feed doing Bible study on Wednesday night anyway. But that particular Wednesday, we weren't having Bible study. And he still said, feed his people. And I called my church church and I was like, hey, uh, God just told me that we, need, we still need to feed. 
And I said, I want to know if we have the money because that Sunday before, nobody showed up to church. Like, nobody. Everybody's afraid. And he was like, let me see how many folks you're trying to feed. I said, well, God didn't give me any details. He just said, feed, you know? So if we can do like 50, maybe I hope that'll make him okay. And, um, and he said, I can turn, I can find some money for 50 people. And he did. And he was in the kitchen. I was at the door and that was March 18, 2020. Fast forward to today, May 24th, that food ministry is still going on. And we have now given out over 370,000 meals. Um, and that was just during COVID-19. We're the only place in the city whose doors have been open every day. And I'm talking about those people who are listening, give to the historic (laughs) Vernon AME church. If for no reason other than the fact that one, God wakes up their minister (laughs) and and in the middle of the night and tells him how to proceed. And two, because they are giving out 300,000 plus meals, close to 400,000 meals. That's, that is truly God's work. Talk about how you're doing all this work as a millennial minister, because you know, a lot of times you hear in the black church that one of the things, especially in the in the AME church, because I'm Episcopalian, okay. which means I'm I'm Catholic light. Yeah. However, <laughs> uh, you know, I have nothing but AME churches around us. My good friend Clemente Pinckney was the pastor yeah. at Mother Emanuel AME Church. And right. I, I say this with no hesitation, the AME church is probably, not probably, is the church with the most political prowess. Um, especially throughout the South and the way that they activate their membership, et cetera, et cetera. So I know a lot about it, but I also know there's a huge generational divide in that church as well, like many other black churches. So so how do you transition? How does that work? And how do you cater to younger members uh, in your in your activism, in your ministry, not just in the church, but outside the church, especially being a millennial, probably with a congregation that's older than you? Yeah, I'm... I'm that. 95% of our membership is over the age of 65. So you're absolutely right. Um, COVID had a part of it that blessed us uh, because it forced us to get into the technological space where most of my age group is. And it has put us on equal footing with other ministries now. Uh, we have a live stream service. We didn't have that before COVID. We have online giving capabilities. We didn't have much of that before COVID. And we have a social media presence. Uh, we're still behind the eight ball because other ministries have already done that like years ago. But it, it has at least introduced us to that space. And being being um being a millennial, uh, and especially one from the deep south, you know, I'm, I was born and raised in Alabama. You know, my parents met. I can at hear it in your. I can hear it in your voice. Yeah, I speak three languages: English, Spanish, and Southern. And so <laughs> I was. I mean, I was raised, I was born on the campus of Tuskegee University, the John mm-hmm. Andrew Hospital, the same hospital they gave syphilis to black men. And so I, the framework I have being from the Deep South um, and a millennium is, and from Tuskegee, right? The city of Booger T. Washington, George Washington Carver, Rosa Parks, Lionel Richie, you know, Tuskegee Airmen. I felt like I could do anything. And so, and that's one thing that millennials and I have in common. We, we think we can change the world. And, and I've seen black people change the world, being from Tuskegee in Alabama. And um, that's that's what gives me my inspiration and motivation and to do things maybe differently mm-hmm. than those before. I will be speaking at Tuskegee Institute, Tuskegee University's graduation. I'm the really? commencement speaker. They said you were booked up, so they had to come get me. I mean, I, <laughs> Boy, that's, that's just cool, what, that what they said. That Talk is cool. about you. are you doing that? Uh, Sunday morning. So I'm going to be cooking. 
Listen, in Tuskegee, Alabama, it's gonna be hot. It's gonna be scorching. It's gonna. I'm. A, I'm not gonna even wear. I'm just. I might even just have my t-shirt on, my suit pants and t-shirt on under under my robe. I'm still be- jealous, brother. I haven't been back to Tuskegee in God knows how long. So I. I never went to. I never went to a class there, but I was a local, so to speak. Oh yeah. Uh, <laughs> but so you yeah, know what we're gonna do? You know what we're gonna do for listeners? We're gonna we're going to play uh, on this clip right here. We're gonna play uh, when when Tuskegee has a football game and they're under the shed, so yes. people know so people know how Tuskegee is rocking yes. down there. <laughs> yeah, ball and parlay. That's it. That, that's it. That's <laughs> it. So look, you. <laughs> that's so true. So you 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 come from this historical background, and then you end up in this place that you're in now. It's funny how. God works in such mysterious ways. Talk about your church, the historic yeah. Vernon AME Church and its place in the Tulsa community. And this is probably going to be a longer answer. I don't mind if you teach folk. That's what we want. But I want you to talk about it both historically and right now as we speak. Vernon is the oldest continuous landowner in the Greenwood District. She was started in 1905 uh, in a living room on Detroit Avenue, which was in the Greenwood District. In fact, Vernon actually predates the Greenwood District. It's, it's stated to have been founded, if you will, in 1906 or the end of 1905. And Vernon started, well, with early, in the early part of 1905. In 1906, we went into the first building on Greenwood Avenue, which was Gurley Hall. And we rented a space on the lower level there for our worship services. And then we went into on Archer and started a building there in the Barksdale building. Then we built our own edifice. And in 1908, we came to Greenwood. We came to 309 North Greenwood Avenue as, as landowners. And we've been landowners ever since. And in 1914, we started building our basement. 1919, we completed our basement. And we in 1921, we began to build the superstructure of our church. And on May 31st through June the 1st, that superstructure was destroyed in what became the worst act of racial terror in American history, where in less than 18 hours, 10,000 people were made homeless. Uh, In less than 18 hours, 1,256 homes destroyed, over 60 plus businesses burned to the ground, um, we had over 300 people killed in less than 18 hours. They they marched black people to concentration camps right here in America, uh, and it wasn't in state. It wasn't in territory Oklahoma. This wasn't the wild wild west. This was post statehood. This was a state of the United States of America, and we saw for the first time in American history uh, bombs dropped on American soil, and the first victims of that aerial assault were black people. Were churches, were black schools, black libraries, black businesses were the tell, first target. Tell tell folk why. What what exactly was the Tulsa race massacre? Why did this occur? Because some people, they, listen, I got a lot of homies that are listening to this, and this will be the first time they ever hear about it. So what happened was, well, really, it's it's two stories. One is the immediate story, which is Dick Rowland on the elevator with Sarah Page. Either he's bumped into or stepped on a shoe, whatever. She screamed. They ran out. And the people heard her scream and the article in the paper ran the next day, nap Negro for assault and white girl. Right now, I have met the descendants of Dick Rowland. They have shared with me that Dick Rowland and Sarah Page had a relationship. And they left town and got married. But either way, all that the people needed to know 
in Tulsa was that this black boy was on the elevator with a white girl. And the only re- the only reason he was on the elevator was because as a shoe shine boy, he was outside shining shoes. And because of Jim Crow, which had become the first, which, which was the first law passed in Oklahoma after statehood in 1907, he could not use the, ra- the bathrooms on the bottom level. So he had to go upstairs to the colored restroom. And in that time period, you had elevator operators and this elevator operator was a white girl. And so we have this yellow journalism. We have a mob that ascended outside of the county jail wanting to lynch Dick Rowland. And we had black men who had just come back in 1919 from fighting in the World War. Mm-hmm. And they weren't about to let this black brother get lynched without justice, without him having a day in court. So these black men come down to the courthouse. It really inspires me today, you know, as a black man. They went down to the courthouse in 1921 to make sure that lynch mob did not kill and lynch his brother. And they went down with their guns and they offered help to the county sheriff because these white mob people were about to overrun the county jail. So these black men come in and say, hey, we're trying to help you. And these these black men were maybe 25, 30 black men. Right. And they were going against or willing to go against hundreds of thousands of members of a white mob. And they tell the sheriff, they say, hey, sheriff, we're here to help you protect Dick Rowland. The sheriff tells these black men, hey, I don't need your help. Go back to Greenwood. Or they call it a little Africa. And on the way back, one of the white men approaches one of the black men who had a gun and said, hey, N-I-G-G-E-R, what are you doing with that gun? And the black man said, you know, Second Amendments, right? He said, it's my gun and I use it if I have to. And the white man was flabbergasted. How, first of all, how dare these black guys come down to uh, the county jail to defend somebody of their own kind and have guns and speak back to a white man. And so the white man tries to take the gun from the black man. The gun goes off. White man was hit, not killed, but he was hit. And literally all hell breaks loose. And gunfire started. And it was a decent fight for a minute up until they got airplanes and start dropping bombs and incendiary devices all throughout Greenwood. Who is that? The white mob. So the same sheriff that told the black people to go back to Greenwood, this same sheriff deputized members of that white mob. And those men, he gave them guns and ammunition to come down to Greenwood and destroy it. And some of the local owned business, some of the local oil companies allowed them to drive their airplanes to drop bombs on black people in Greenwood. And some of those oil companies like Sinclair Oil, according to the Race Ride Commission Report of 2001, are still in existence today. This episode is brought to you by Thomas's. Thomas's presents Technique with Tom. Slicing an English muffin with a butter blade? Boulder Dash. Just pull apart with your hands and marvel in the nooks and crannies splendor. For each one is unique like a snowflake. Thomas's. Huzzah! A toast to breakfast. This episode is brought to you by Viore. I love sports. I know you do too. I also know that lots of you exercise, but if you're like me and my wife, the, the beloved sports gal, You're sick and tired of ugly, uncomfortable workout gear, especially, you know, I do a lot of walking. I walk around LA, I make calls, I listen to podcasts. Here are two words that will change everything. Viore clothing, a line of activewear that is unbelievable. The best thing about Viore is you can lounge around in it 
you can work out in it. You can go outside, you can go shopping down in your local wherever and you never feel like you're either underdressed or overdressed. You're just comfortable. You can wear it when you're training, traveling, lounging around the house. Go get yourself some of the most comfortable and versatile clothing in the planet. Here's the deal. Our listeners get 20% off their first purchase at viore.com slash Simmons. Once again, V-U-O-R-I.com slash Simmons. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. Which brings me to my next point, because we talk a lot about reparations, but in this case, you still have survivors and families that were a part of the massacre. Mm -hmm. What is old? How much is old? And other than Sinclair Oil, who owes it? Well, I believe the city of Tulsa, whose fire department did not put out one fire, and they were functioning. They didn't run out of water. They just didn't use the water. Uh, the city's police department didn't make one arrest. In fact, the only people that were arrested after this were the black men to seek to intimidate them from going back to rebuild. And the county sheriff's department, who deputized members of his white mob, and the state's National Guard, who watched bodies be dumped into mass graves. They all are culpable. And, and, and they're at, at the very least, they're complicit. And, and, and at the worst, they are they're co-conspirators in the worst race massacre in American history. And so that's why every week I go down to City Hall um, demanding justice, demand reparations. You ask for the amount. In the immediate aftermath, it was totaled to be $2.7 million worth. And this is 1921 money. So you mean Black people, a Black community in 1921 had $2.7 million worth of value, of wealth. That's a huge chunk of change for today, right? Um, and you, if you adjust that for inflation today, that's like $300 million plus dollars. And none of that was paid. We filed our insurance claims. I challenge anybody in your listening audience, if they were to have their houses burned tonight, God forbid, or cars destroyed today, God forbid, the first thing most people would do is call their insurance company to file a claim. We did that. None of our claims were honored. Not a single one. And that type of money, that's, that's, that's fraud. That's like contract fraud to not pay mm -hmm. insurance claims. What we, in, in the legal sense. Yeah, in the legal sense. Call, that's what we call bad faith. Bad faith. All right. That's bad faith. And so we never recouped from that. Those insurance companies got off scot-free. They took out premiums every month and never paid us a dime. And so... You have the insurance commission as at fault. You have the city of Tulsa as at fault. You have the county of Tulsa that's at fault. The what, what has the what has the city, the state, what have they done to make amends for the Tulsa race massacre? Nothing, absolutely nothing. In the year of 1997, they formed this race. They called it race ride commission, and that commission consisted of 
six gubernatorial appointees, and we had a Republican governor. We still have Republican governors in this state. Um, governor Keaton appointed six people. The mayor of Tulsa, Susan Savage, who's not known to be a, a bleeding heart liberal, um, she's more moderate. Uh, she appointed three people, right? And those individuals sat on this commission. And that commission did an extensive research and survey, bipartisan commission, not some commission appointed by, by Antifa or commission appointed by some left-leaning group. It was a commission appointed by the governor and the mayor. And that commission of Republicans and Democrats came up with five recommendations. And that first recommendation was direct payments to the survivors. Yes, a, a, a bipartisan commission in 2001 said that there should be reparations paid to the survivors first. And in the absence of the survivors, number two recommendation was direct payments to the descendants. And then a third recommendation was scholarships for the children of the survivors or the descendants of the survivors. Number four, economic incubators for Black-owned businesses to return to Greenwood. And number five was a memorial place for the bodies dumped in mass graves to be interned. Not a one of those things, Brother Bakari, has been done. The commission was funded. I, they got they passed money to support the study of the commission, but did not support the recommendation of the commission. At first, Governor Keating of Oklahoma came out in support of it. He got pressure from his base. He withdrew that support, and we have not seen reparations since. That's crazy. I mean, I thought they would at least give you the memorial. We they, we good for getting a memorial place <laughs> yeah. or something and nothing else. Why do you think it's so important for the country? And listen to the way that I frame the question. But why do you think it's so important for the country to not tell these stories? Many times you see, and you see this movement right now where people are trying to, for lack of a better term, whitewash American history. And you see that in Tulsa. People did not want to tell this story. My father shot in the Orange Rug Massacre in 68. They don't want to tell those stories. What purpose do you think, think it serves for? And, and the overarching majority of this country don't know about Tulsa. Why do you think that is? Why do you think we just don't teach it? I think because America has made an idol out of whiteness and, and this idolatry of white supremacy, it, it does not allow you to see whiteness in a negative light. And so this and but and by and the inverse of that is true. Blackness cannot be seen in a positive light on a mm. mainstream level. And so Tulsa turns that story on its head because in Tulsa you have just two generations out of slavery. You have black people who came from the deep south Black people who once were enslaved by the Native Americans who came here during the Trail of Tears. In fact, it was the Black people who cut down the trees for the Trail of Tears. And you have them in a matter of just decades creating the most prosperous place for Black people in the country. One of the most prosperous places for Black or white folks, period. With no help from anybody, right? With no affirmative action, with no governmental uh, uh, program, right. with no philanthropic grant, you just had black people, former sharecroppers, who created this black Wall Street out of dust. And on the opposite side, you had white folks. that It drove them crazy because they were raised thinking that black folks could not do anything. Well, talk so to me, that, but, but to that same point, though, talk about how it's central to how we understand uh, the income or the wealth gap in this country right now. Because you got to understand what happened in black Wall Street to understand the wealth gap we have right now. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. Great, great, great point. Because we didn't get where we are by osmosis. This was strategic and deliberate. You know, the, the, the divestment of wealth from black people was deliberate. We, we came here as chattel. And anytime we sought to rise above the level of being a commodity, we in every generation have seen to be cut down. Um, we even see it now with our basketball players. When they when they want to speak out, they're, mm-hmm. they're told to just shut up and dribble, right? Mm-hmm. Anytime mm-hmm. we want to rise above the level of being seen or used simply as a commodity, then we are immediately re- reminded of our stance in society. And I, I think that is a vestige of white supremacy. I, I'm thankful that we have been emancipated from chattel slavery, but the ideology of white supremacy that undergirded that slavery is still in effect today. And you preaching a little bit now. That's what I'm <laughs> sometimes. So I like when you get into your into your into your preaching voice over there sometimes, <laughs> because I think the frustrating part for me and many others is that we have these stories and people just want to they prefer to be um, uh, willfully ignorant uh, about the history of people of color in this country. Um, in particular, the survivors who are still telling their stories. I'm going to play a clip from the testimony of one of the survivors in Congress recently. I still smell smoke and see fire. I still see black businesses being burned. I still hear airplanes flying overhead. I hear the screams. I have lived through the massacre every day. Our country may forget this history, but I cannot. I will not. And other survivors do not. And our descendants do not. But as you watch the testimony, talk to me about how important it is to show not only that this wasn't that long ago, but how critical these stories and these visuals are to your cause and our cause as well. You saw one of the strongest people ever testify about the brutality that was done to her community. Yes. Oh, no. Um, I felt that that took a a lot of courage to stand and share that Um, we in this community have seen survivors, members of this church were even survivors before they passed away, um, not given that right to speak. People like J.W. Williams, who owned the Dreamland Theater, um, one that one the first people in Tulsa owned an automobile. You know, he never had the chance to share his testimony. I, I really I, I'm encouraged by the strength of that generation of African-Americans who for decades were forbidden to even speak about it without threat of, of violence or death. Um, and I'm thankful that in the past 20 plus years, we've seen a lot more of them given a platform to uh, to speak out. When you saw uh, what was happening on January 6th in the insurrection, how did that remind you of the Tulsa race riots? And could you also speak broadly about the history of white mob violence from Rosewood to Tulsa to January 6th as somewhat of a common theme in our history? Oh, yeah. I wrote uh, a piece on that on my page concerning how January 6th, the insurrection, um, really reminded me of what happened here in Tulsa and in in black communities all across uh, this country, because Tulsa wasn't the only race massacre. In fact, this country from 1919 to 1924 has had over 50 plus race massacres in places like East St. Louis, Washington, D.C., mm-hmm. and all over the country, Chicago and other places. And most recently in Philadelphia, 1985, they used airplanes or helicopters to terrorize Americans there as well. And so what we are seeing in America and what we have seen in America is that white people a certain segment of the white population 
does not know how to take defeat, does not know how to handle their grievances. They lost an election and they committed an insurrection. I mean, let's let that sink in for a minute. Just imagine all the elections black people were not even allowed to vote in. Yep. And not once did we cause our industry. In fact, black people have state have been in this country. There have been more elections that we could not have voted in that we, we have voted in to date. Correct. To date. If you from 1776 to 2021, this country's had more elections that black people could not have voted in than we have voted in. And we have not once had an insurrection on our nation's capital. And these white people got upset about losing an election. And Joe Biden got more votes than any presidential candidate ever. And he won. And they got upset about it. And so I think it just goes another line of white privilege that even when they lose an election, they want to call an election that has been certified by every state in the union. They can't take defeat. Rosewood. And, 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 and for some reason, some whites see black excellence or black success or when black people are happy, they see that as a defeat for white people. Like they actually saw Barack Obama election as a defeat for them. They saw Rosewood. They saw Greenwood as a defeat for them. What about our success offends them so much? That's what I just don't get. And so that's 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 my response to them. And I, I and and really. If America doesn't put her extreme elements of white supremacy in check, it could be a cause of the further undoing of our great democracy. A last question for you. What role do you think the black church plays as we go forward in healing this great divide and and, and rooting out white supremacy and and getting us the country or helping us reimagine the country that we want to see? I think the black church uh, historically and even present day has been it is the oldest Black-owned institution, a Black-ran institution in this country that we have. Um, and it gave us our enfranchisement. Before we could vote in the polls, we could vote for church trustees. Board members. <laughs> you know, it, 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 it was our democratic dream. We practiced how to be citizens. Um, and I think that a part of our healing is the role of the Black church, being that independent body that it is, to continue to speak truth to power and continue to inspire people to march from Selma to Montgomery to continue to inspire people to go out to City Hall with me every Wednesday to fight for reparations. To How long you been doing that, man? September 12th, 2018. In the rain, sleet, hell, or snow, letting the world know reparations now. My sign behind me and my bullhorn has been with me the whole time. Man, that's dope, man. I just want to say thank you so much for, for spending some time with me today. I know that this is an important time period for you as we as we go from the one year anniversary of the or commemoration of the death of George Floyd to the hundred year commemoration of uh, Black Wall Street bomb in Greenwood, Tulsa, Oklahoma, we just say thank you for everything that you've been doing, Reverend. Keep on keeping on. And I hope my listeners decide to give a little bit to uh, Vernon Amy Church, man. Thank you, my brother. Brother Bacar, I'm a huge fan of yours and, and do thank well you. in Tuskegee this weekend. I will, trust me. We'll knock them dead. Have a good one, brother. <laughs> thank you, you too. Before I let you go, I'd be remiss if I didn't shout out graduates of the class of 2021. And I want to give a special shout out to my nephew, Cleveland Sellers, who was the valedictorian of his high school class at the Northwest School of the Arts in Charlotte, North Carolina. And he'll be an incoming freshman in Notre Dame this fall. 
I'd encourage everyone to go to my IG page to see his graduation speech that I was reposted. It goes without saying that our new graduates are really walking into a set of challenging circumstances. You've lived through a pandemic and an economic collapse. You've got student loan debt. You're on the heels of arguably the most overtly racist administration in our lifetimes, a summer of protest, and an incredibly hostile environment to many of the emerging cultural touch points that many of you have come to expect. Diversity, some degree of cultural sensitivity, respect for our LGBTQ community, a growing comfort level with what it means to be anti-racist. These are all things that you as young graduates do far more easily, but the world you're walking into doesn't fully embrace the things that you all take for granted because you do it so easily. My advice to this new class, keep pushing. You're on the right side of history. And what that means is that while the moment may be uncomfortable, you will all be glad that you made the right choices now and society can catch up with you. That's that on that. We'll see you all on Thursday. Good evening, Northwest graduates, family members, and friends. My name is Cleveland Sellers IV, and I am honored to be your 2021 valedictorian. Before I begin, I would like to issue out a couple very important thank yous. I would first like to thank God for giving me the intelligence, drive, and determination to pursue this esteemed achievement. I would like to thank my family and friends for being my cheerleaders, anchors, and therapists throughout the course of my life. I would like to thank the Northwest faculty and staff for facilitating an educational environment conducive to growth and empowerment. And lastly, I would like to thank my mother. There will never be a woman more caring, a soul more compassionate, or a mind as wise as hers. Every great thing I accomplish in this life, I will attribute to her, for she is my rock, my most trusted advisor, and my closest friend. Now, I have dreamt about this moment being valedictorian since I was in the eighth grade. Much to my dismay, I was informed that my speech could not go over three minutes. Upon hearing this, I stepped back to look at this accomplishment through a neutral lens and began to wonder how three minutes could ever be enough time to say what deserved to be said. I would have three minutes to commemorate a five-year-long journey of dedication, hard work, and sacrifice. I would have three minutes to laud the sleepless nights, lonely weekends, and outbursts of frustration that eventually led me to this stage. I would have three minutes to inspire the world's future leaders and ensure them that we will one day see our names engraved into the history books alongside King, Carmichael, and Du Bois. So as I was starting, stopping, and resetting my stopwatch to the cadence of this speech, I became acutely aware of the concept of time. As the speech writing process continued, I began to reminisce on my youth. Once upon a time, I ran away in terror from a girl in my class as she attempted to plant her lips on the side of my cheek on the last day of first grade. I remember lounging on the couch in Georgia every Friday night with my two sisters, begging my mother to let us stay up past 8.30 so we could watch the newest episodes of Austin and Allie. I look back on that boy and remember his smile, laughter, and innocence. 
innocence being the key word here, because that boy could drive past the flag commemorating a regime that raped, divided, and enslaved his ancestors without blinking an eye. Whereas the man you see today is appalled by those who are proud of a history of dehumanization, nine-tailed whips, and nooses strung up on trees, that boy wouldn't have recognized that those wanting to make America great again were the few that America was actually great too. I looked back on that boy and remembered his smile, laughter, and innocence like it was yesterday, only it wasn't yesterday. I went from cooties, car seats, and Disney Channel to girlfriends driving in CNN faster than the speed of light. I came to realize that my childhood had ticked by faster than the three minutes allotted for this speech. From my exploration through time, I became reacquainted with the brevity of human life. So as we set out to wage war on outdated traditions of oppression and create a world that our children's children can one day be proud of, I urge my fellow graduates to never lose track of time. It has a funny way of passing us by when we turn our backs and when we're finally ready to face it, it is no longer there. In order to engender change and make the most out of all the time we have left, we must live intentional lives. We must live like we want to change the world today because our tomorrows are not guaranteed. You may scoff at this cliche, but I'm sure Eric Gardner, Sandra Bland, Richard Brooks know their names, thought they would see tomorrow too. I'm sure the 49 people in Orlando, Florida who died on June 12, 2016 thought they would see tomorrow too. I'm sure the children in Israel whose limbs were ripped from their bodies by ill-conceived airstrikes thought they would see tomorrow too. We live in a world where the color of our skin, proclamations of sexual preference and differences in ethnic background can condemn us to death. We cannot afford to wait for tomorrow because this world must change today. We are the catalyst for that change, the calamity of the old world order and the key to progress. The time allotted for this three minute speech was up long ago, but I must ask you, how much longer will we allow our world to continue its descent into darkness? How much longer will people be robbed of their tomorrows before we take advantage of our todays? How much longer will it take for us to realize that the ideal time to recreate our world is now? We must claim what we inherited and make it our own, for we are the generation that will rescue humanity. And we must do it now. Thank you.